0: Welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. It's a great pleasure today to have as our guest, Dr. Larry Arne, who's the 12th president of Hillsdale College. That's a position he's held for the last 22 years. Dr. Arne received his BA from Arkansas State University and his MA and PhD from Claremont Graduate School. From 1977 to 80, he also studied at the London School of Economics and at Worcester College, Oxford University, where he served as director of research for Martin Gilbert, the official biographer of Winston Churchill. Dr. Arndt's own book on Churchill was published under the title, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government from 1985 until his appointment as president of Hillsdale College in 2000, he was president of the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. From October 2020 to January 21, he served as co-chair of the President's Advisory 1776 Commission. He's the author of several books, including the one on Churchill I mentioned, and The Founder's Key, The divine and natural connection between the Declaration and the Constitution. Hillsdale and Dr. Arn are also the publisher of Imprimus, a monthly publication of Hillsdale that goes to far more than 6 million people nationally. So, uh, Larry, welcome to the program. Nice to be with you, Bob. Now, today I think we're going to be discussing the state of America and whether, as so many people, worry, is it in a state of terminal decline? If we look across the horizon at crime statistics, violence in the streets, contested elections, the deplorable state of education, particularly the losses of learning during the COVID lockdowns, and the howling out of the U.S. military, there are plenty of things about which to worry. Let me use your own question to kick this off from one of your own imprimis essays you asked this how would you reduce the greatest free Republican history to despotism in a short time is (laughs) is that in fact what we've been experiencing yeah the situation is very bad uh remember that
1: uh saying that we're in in a state of terminal decline I know you don't believe that is a prediction about the future And Churchill always said the future, though imminent, is obscure, but there are some deep things wrong. The situation reminds me of the situation in the Revolutionary War, when there was a fundamental difference of opinion about what constituted title to govern, and that was a fundamental difference about the nature of people. The King George maintained that he was born to rule us, and we were born to serve him. And he had a charitable understanding of that. He said that he had no choice but to rule us and to rule us well, but we had no choice but to obey him. And that's what the difference of opinion was about. And in 1860, there was a large faction threatening to become the dominant faction that had the view that uh, I don't think there was ever a a pro-slavery faction that was threatening to dominate. But there was a faction that was threatening to dominate, and that was the, the the faction that slavery doesn't make any difference in a free country. That was Stephen Douglas's position. So both of those things are a fundamental dispute about the nature of people and about the nature of government. And we have that today. And what's it like today? We people think that there's a lot of ways to state it, but a, a abbreviated way is they think that expertise is the title to rule expertise is expressed in two things in the scientific method which we don't apply very well these days and it's uh, expressed in bureaucratic processes and they are the legitimate source of authority and so that's why the you know that that idea has fueled the government becoming huge and developing a regulatory state that can dominate now they now specifically explicitly disobey orders from elected officials and in in the press directives of elected officials are treated as intrusions and uh you know the trump administration revealed a lot of that but it's been apparent for a long time so that's what the crisis is about and then government that's not responsive to the people is not likely to be very good government that's responsible people in the wrong way is not likely to be very good and we've got both problems today so it's yeah you're right there's decay everywhere you
0: look well Larry you mentioned that during the time of the American Revolution there were contending views of human nature in other words what a human being is and how how he ought to rule himself or be ruled How would you describe those different views of human nature today that are in contention?
1: Well, we think of, uh, well, the more advanced, in quote, thinkers among us think that humans, humanity, and nature are constructs. They're things that people have developed over time. And that means that if we've developed them over time, and now we know that, we can develop them differently if we want to. And so that's one view. And the other view is every time you plant a pine cone, you get a pine tree. And every time human beings give birth to a baby, they get, they get a human baby. And dogs never do that. And human beings have things about their nature that are abiding, just like dogs do, just like cats do. Human beings are an immaterial soul in a material body. And that's a unique situation in nature. And so that's a fixity. And so those are the two views. And that means that we think that if we're uncomfortable with anything about human nature, we can change it.
0: Yes, exactly. You have alluded to the attempt to remaking nature.
1: You know, that's an old movement in philosophy. We should reveal to our viewers that we've known each other a long time. (laughs) And we studied these things beginning about, by my count, 375 years ago. And what do you learn? You learn that there's a strain in modern philosophy. There are other strains too, thankfully. That it it means that nature is not a thing to serve. It's a thing to conquer. Francis Bacon writes that uh, torturing nature is the scientific process. You're not studying it, you're, you're not observing it, you're not learning from it, you're altering it. You're learning the mechanisms by which you can change it. And that's a different approach to investigation. And it means that you wanna change everything. I, you know, I find in my work that it's an extremely valuable thing to establish with young people that things are actually real and stubborn because, you know, I mean, we get a very special class of person here at Hillsdale College, I'm proud proud to say, but still they don't, you know, they've they've heard all the modern doctrines and they need to think there are some fundamental things. And if they change, then the being that's changed in that way and the world in which they live will not be the same world anymore. So, you know, it's possible that we could uh, live forever, I guess, but If we did, we wouldn't be the same thing anymore. And, you know, so to orient yourself by that liberates you from recognizing both the constraints and the purposes of human life. And so young people today, they, you know, why do they come to Hillsdale College? They do come in droves these days. Uh, They come because they wanna figure out a very uncertain world. They don't really, I mean, everybody wants certainty. Everybody wants to learn things they can rely on. But they don't necessarily come with any particular view about what that will end up being. But they know that if it's true, it'll be something they can rely on.
0: It's real. I think I've told you before, Larry, that my experience with Hillsdale College, both being on the campus and sitting with your students at various Washington events, Constitution Day and so forth, what I observed is that they're happy, and I believe that they are happy because you have, you and your fellow teachers and the whole orientation of the Hillsdale education is to instill in them a love of the good. Yeah, the fundamental rule of management,
1: after my long experience, uh, it turns out Winston Churchill was right. He says, human beings are easy to lead and hard to drive. And translate that a little bit. You don't actually want to be in the position to make anybody do anything because they'll never do it very well. And so it's really crucial to get them to agree. So we have an honor code here and we tell all the hard facts when we recruit. And the more we do that, the more apply. But, you know, what are the hard facts? The hard facts are it's a little town here and kind of boring. You know, if you come from a big city, it's cold in the winter. drizzly and I don't mind that so much but uh, drizzly and damp and gray in February and March and then it's hard here you will get lower grades here than anywhere else you could go and that makes young people sit up and I mean they might say I don't want that I want to play video games or whatever young people do most of them in our experience don't do that most of them say oh here's something to do then they have accepted all that, and that means that you don't have any reason to fight, for, fight with them after that. They know, and you know, there were more fights here when I first came here. There'd been some, some uh, disorder in the college, and a lot of kids wish they weren't here. That's just not true anymore, and uh, they've been warned against all the bad stuff, so it's not a surprise to them. In fact, it's a badge of honor to have chosen that to them. And that's what Churchill meant when he said, easy to lead and hard to drive.
0: Well, when I had the privilege of being on your campus, it was January and it wasn't there wasn't a, a wave of warmth. It was very cold, but again, the students were happy, as I mentioned. Now, the character of your students seems to me to be an exception because what you're teaching there so goes against the grain of what has dominated the culture in the United States from other educational institutions, from the media, from the corporate gurus. So it's you're, it's going very much against the grain. And occasionally you come across these startling statistics that are cause for major worry. I'm sure you saw that the U.S. Army fell well short of its uh, recruitment requirements by 25% no small amount. And behind that is this uh, even more worrying statistic that of those young people in the age range to serve in the military, say between age 17 and 24, only 25% of them are fit enough to qualify for going into the military. The other 75% obese, drug problems, criminal records, That easily invites the question as to how serious our decline is, I think. Oh yeah, I actually react to
1: statistics like that with, thank God they're young, because they can turn their life around. And why are they unfit? And why are they unwilling to serve? They've been told two things in ascending order of badness. They've been told their life is entirely up to them. And they've been told that their country is not worth serving. But, of course, they in the end, you know, like if we get attacked, which we will be if we keep on the way we are, that'll turn around on a dime. I actually
0: think the Chinese
1: understand that about us, and they're
0: very slow to provoke. I've had a number of top experts on China on this program, and I've always asked the same question at some point in the program. The policy under Deng Xiaoping and then following him was to just to be quiet and develop your power, you know mask your power and just continue with your economic growth. And obviously President Xi Jinping abandoned that policy and is showing his muscle, and is intimidating his neighbors, and is ignoring international norms, and militarizing islands in the South China Sea, et cetera. There's a long litany of that. And I always, always ask them, why didn't he just keep quiet for another five or 10 years, and then it would all be over? And the answer invariably was, oh, they already think it's over. Yeah. That's they it. Already, that's they've a already judged the United States as having reached a point in its decline that it can't recover that's it they think they've won but another thing is she
1: is the kind of man who wants to dominate before he dies and so his judgment might be affected by that like I don't think it's over I think that there are vast reserves in America that are untapped and ready to be tapped and you know nobody wants to be governed by a despot from China no Chinese and nobody outside China nobody wants to be governed by a despot from anywhere we have to understand that that's possible and we don't think it is and you know it's it's partly colored over with one of the initial arguments in a bad education is relativism It's not very strong and it doesn't last, but their idea is what's right for you is for you and doesn't mean it's right for anybody else. But that gives rise to a kind of strategic view, right? Chinese like their despotism, or anyway, they're entitled to it. I think they're entitled to it, but I doubt if they like it. So, in other words, we don't look at a world in which there's good government and bad, they're just different ones. And the only one we're capable of being critical anymore is our own. And uh, that's, you know, that's, why is that? That's because liberation requires overcoming nature. We have to be dissatisfied with whatever it is about us that's abiding and strong. And uh, that makes us self-destructive. But I don't see that. I mean, I do think that this is a very serious situation. And if if I think, and I do sometimes think, it's like, 1776 or
0: 1860. Well, we got past those. Reason for hope. But the character of the American people was very different in 1776 and in 1860 than the character of the people today. I'm not so sure.
1: I mean, sure, extensively it was, it is, but, and you know, if you want to be gloomy about it, that's a cause. And another cause is those times were influenced by some of the greatest statesmen who ever lived do we have that today the answer is obviously not but I comfort myself about something and that is that you learned when you study statesmanship that in the and statesmanship is a supreme form of art people who are good at ruling and politics are very good at getting things done and so the opposite of art is chance but it turns out statesmanship is a kind of symbol of chance in the classic works it is because you never know when you're going to get it and that's comforting and there's a doctrine that where chance turns into providence that we get great statesmen when we need them and we need them now and I notice the run of political talent rising as well as declining and so the story is not over yet and you know I mean there's a bunch of governors who are doing a really good job, and they're facing the same opposition that the country faces nationally, and they seem to be able to win over it. Harder on the national level. If it proves anything, it proves they might be able to do it. In one way, I have a very confined job. It's good for me, because I have these 1,650 young people, and they're a pain in the tuchus. And how do you educate them? and make them grow help them grow they don't we don't make anything grow it grows in itself but how do you help them grow well I keep at that work and that gives me something to do that's achievable saving the country is bigger and vaguer but also I think that the key to saving the country is teaching like this program you know what does it mean that more than three and a half million people take online courses with Hillsdale College. And the number grows sharply every year. And what they're doing is watching complicated videos. The uh, numbers about how how thoroughly they watch them, how long they watch them, just off the charts compared to anybody else. I think the national uh, average for completion of a online course is between one and 2%. And our our numbers for the completion of the whole course is over thirty five percent, and individual lectures over eighty five percent. So what's that about, right? And that's because people want to know, and you know the first line of Aristotle's Metaphysics says, "The human being stretches itself out to know." You just have to know how to you know what's valuable, because everybody wants to know. Like uh, not everybody wants to be a plumber. It's a very noble calling. If you want to be a plumber, you will watch with intention, with attention, uh, videos about how to be a plumber. Everybody wants to be a good human being, and they want to know what their capacities are that make them human. And they want to get good at those capacities, and they want to develop the knowledge and character that are possible because of those capacities. So when you dwell on that it's of natural interest to everyone I remember once I get to tell stories about you we had an awesome teacher one of the best teachers I ever saw and he was a self-professed nihilist In, in the early days and still you were a much more advanced student than I was and you erupted at this man Harry Newman the late lamented Harry Newman and you said you're a solipsistic phenomenologist I had no idea what that meant I remember we were sitting in a in a classroom at Scripps College and Professor Newman I remember his attitude face and and he he went oh yeah I am <laughs> he said so he had to think <clears throat> he had to think up what the words meant from the classic languages and when he got it, he said oh yeah I am that right nonetheless he was a great teacher And, uh, boy, if you want to learn Nietzsche, there's no better person that I've ever encountered who can teach that. And Nietzsche is uh, beautiful and horrible, both. Very unique. Modern philosophy is mostly just a chore. I mean, especially the late stages of modern philosophy. Our friend Chris Flannery said in class one time, that's almost Hegelian in its profundity. (laughs) uh, People want to know. And people want to be free. And that means that you have to think whatever the forces are raid now, the time is on your side, maybe not in your lifetime, but on your side fully. And then there's the Christian faith also that gives some hope and confidence.
0: You mentioned you're encouraged even by these worrying statistics about young people because they have time to turn their lives around. One institution that I've had experience that does that very well is the U.S. military, in which I served for a short period of time, but I've also worked with the Defense Department for some years, and I've seen it, and I've seen what that does to young people, how it turns around and instills in them a sense of discipline, of self-respect, and also a willingness to sacrifice. However, when we speak of the corruption of American institutions, I am afraid we can now point to the U.S. military as one of them, because of how the wokeism and the LGBT rainbow disorders and so forth have been imposed upon them. And I remember years ago when I was watching the march of these things through the American institutions, the last one holding out was the U.S. military. So it was targeted, they couldn't let that stand with the kind of integrity that it had and has always had. So the concerted effort to infect the military with the wokeism and this whole agenda of disorders has succeeded. I know from current people in the military how much it has succeeded.
1: The military academies are very bad, but just remember, To say the last holdout, that too is a prediction about the future. And uh, I can tell you scores, thousands, probably tens of thousands of soldiers and sailors and airmen are taking our online courses. Mm. Lots of local law enforcement agencies take these online courses and want us to come out and teach them tutorials. So there's a reaction underway. And will it be strong enough? I pray so, and I I will say, I think so. I have this weird experience. If I had to do over, I'm not sure, knowing what it would take, that I would do it again, but I took up the study of Winston Churchill. What's the story of 1940 like, you know? And he was the only one. He's the only one who were prepared to take action to rally even after the near final disasters had occurred and he was the one who got the job to do that and he'd wanted that job all his life and he only got it when it was probably too late but he did save the world and you know because it was too late or almost too late he did something that he hated to do and predicted would happen He sacrificed the greatness of the British people, of the British nation over that. Because they paid a terrible cost for all that. And he'd been warning about it all his life. In June of 1940, he records, we don't have the speech, but he record he recorded a speech that said, You can take one with you. And if you study his life, you find out he's the most reluctant man ever born to, to say that. The purpose of the government is to protect the British people in peace and prosperity and freedom. He was always an enemy of costly war. And he supported the British empire because it was almost all voluntary and he believed would soon be voluntary and because it was cheap to do. And it made everybody stronger. 50% of the British war effort, roughly speaking, in both world wars, 50% of the casualties and soldiers and sailors and airmen were supplied by imperial nations and Britain didn't have the power to conscript a single one of them in other words he looked for the love that makes things work mm-hmm. right and what's moving President Xi and what's moving the despotic tendencies in our country are not love they're utopian hopes to be accomplished by power and see They're going to run up against that love, I hope, soon, in elections in America. Here's a hopeful thing. Here's a fact about education. You know, I'm interested in education. Uh, We start charter schools at Hillsdale College, and we're involved with 80 of them right now. And there's eight more next year and more the year after that, probably. And all that comes from local efforts asking for our help. And we give it for free unfortunately, we've become famous enough so that our enemies know who we are. It was more comfortable when they, we, they didn't. But there was a firestorm in Tennessee because of something I said, which is teachers are compelled to go to the dumbest parts of the dumbest colleges to get certified, which is true. Demonstrably true, by the way. So that caused a mess, right? But then I started looking closer at the structure of education, how it's changed. And if you go to the Center for Education Statistics in the U.S. Department of Education, you discover that since 2000, students in public schools have grown seven and a half percent, and teachers have grown eight and a half percent, and administrators have grown 87 percent. And that's true to a greater or lesser extent in the red states, too. And that means that there's a whole class. They now number about the same, a little more than the teachers. And it's a whole class of person who dominate the budgets and the planning of education, and they never get in a room with students. And their job is to really tell teachers what to do. And if you wanna know what that must be like, I don't know what it's like, and I don't wanna know, but there are various descriptions of bureaucracy in CS Lewis, and they are borne out by anecdotes that I hear. People in the bureaucracy are not very happy Teachers, by the way, are very often happy. My father found his happiness becoming a school teacher in Pocahontas, Arkansas. And he was a dignity and a high personage in that town. And when he died, there were a lot of people at his funeral. And they all came up to me with a slight air of contest. Am I being faithful to my father? What's a bureaucrat do? Write rules that nobody can read based on some study usually in a university that nobody can read. It's just a power job. That's all it is. My job is to make you do what I say and then measure what you do with the students and then decide if I'm satisfied or not. Of course, never satisfied. If they were, their jobs would stop. Well, we have built that class. There are, what, 23 or 4 million people working for the government of the United States, civilians. And I think that there are three million round numbers at the federal level, and the rest of them are at the state level. And they are a huge class of people whose job is to tell other people what to do. And they get wedded with those jobs. And then, because they're not leading a very happy existence, and I'm just surmising here, then their lives are not very happy. But they want to protect them because they understand there's something artificial about that and so they give a lot of money in politics they're the biggest givers the public employee unions are the biggest givers in politics in america and this big government has changed the relationship between the people and the government because the people in the founders understanding was going to be very big and the government was going to be small and and then the next feature because constitutional you know the people are not saints and saviors to a person or people they need some controls too and so the first control on the people is they have to elect people in staggered times to actually do everything the government does and so all the sovereignty is outside the government and all of the ability to act is inside the government but if you change the relationship in between the size of those things the government's more than half the economy now. And that means it has an enormous sense of independence and control and influence in elections. And that means that we have built a managerial class that hopes to manage us. And it, but for the fact that it's ugly and unsatisfying, I would think it was going to go on to ultimate conquest for sure.
0: I've been reading memoirs autobiographies and histories of Germany in the 30s, always curious as to how that very cultured country got in the grips of a barbaric ideology like Nazism. And one who was very close to Hitler said he, and he was trying to cultivate Hitler, move him away from his anti-Semitism and the cruder aspects of the ideology. He said he came to realize that the party is the state, and the state is the party. You've written about totalitarianism, and of course, we know that's the case in President Xi's China today. The party is the state. It doesn't make anybody happy. And remember, this party
1: that you speak of, it's actually a class of person, and it's a headless class but nonetheless, it's a coherent class. And if the government has influence over 52% last time I looked at it, if you count the entitlements and the direct spending and the regulatory cost, it's a little over half the economy. Well, that means that they have clients all over, everywhere, in every walk of life. And so you may wonder why these corporations are going woke. Well, first of all, their leaders are educated in the source of all wokeness, the source of all of these trends, the big universities. And, you know, in the 19th century, they picked it up from Germany, where it started in, you know, among high thinkers and in universities, and it's worked its way through the society. But also, there's matters of interest involved, because, you know, if the right people, corporations are easy to blackmail. If you offend the right people, they will make you a scandal and the quickest corporations to respond and see the media where they where do they get their educations so their part in other words this ruling class is all over the country in the high places in most walks of life the reason I think it's right to fight them there are two reasons one is I don't think it makes any sense what they're claiming but the second is I grew up in Pocahontas Arkansas and in a family that didn't have any money. And for some reason, I learned from my family, my father's and his brothers especially, that I could do anything I wanted to do, if I would just work hard enough and be good, right? That thing you said before, you know, with kids, you just have to teach them to love the good, which by nature they do, we all do. I mean, if you listen to these social engineers, in the end, they will try to justify what they do on the claim that it's good, even if they refuse to say that anything by nature is good, because you can't get away from it, right? And so I'm on the side of that argument. You know, at the college, I've become unfortunately well known, and so the New Yorker is writing a profile of me.
0: I hope this hard
1: Yeah, 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 well, it called a lot of people. And, uh, you know, the lady's very smart, and I hope she writes a good article, and I won't like her if she doesn't. You know, she pushed me about all kinds of things. And one thing I said was, you just got to remember that there's a hard limit on who you can admit to a college or to any other difficult activity. Because the doing of it will be in each one. You're not making anything in a college. I've been lately comparing it to gardening. You're helping something grow but the growth is in them. And so the hard limit is, do they want to? If they want to enough, that can make up for a world of disadvantages. Even in a college, even in a difficult college like ours, where the standards are very high and it's very hard to get in now, I regret to say. The ones who work the hardest do the best. And so you can't get past that, right? If you raise a child, that the system is everything. All you can do is destroy the character of that child. And so, yeah, there's hard limits and we're up against them now. I've been saying for some years, if parents will put up with a government that takes their children from them, then we're finished. But look at what the recent evidence is. Parents don't like that. And they're in rebellion and they call the FBI on them and they don't back down because it's in nature that parents love their children whatever the establishment in education may say and you know I don't even think it's just you know first of all COVID was very bad for the schools you know because if you don't go to school you won't learn as much as if you do even in a bad school probably but people say they learned what the schools were teaching because the kids were studying at home that's part of it but mostly is however they learn what's becoming obvious is the things that they're teaching are corrupting and and parents don't want that for their children and you know they want them to grow up and be great we just had parents weekend here and we have a thousand parents come a little college like this right i've been to other colleges our size where my kids went and they'll get 60 or 100 we had a thousand parents and one of my favorites i used to give them a big talk at lunch and on the last day they get to meet with every faculty member their kids got for 10 minutes we put tables all over the gym and we ring little bells when their 10 minutes is up and i've done so many of these conversations i can't remember them now but they're all the same they sit down and say, you're great. And the college is great. And I say, your kid's great. And they say one or two things about their kids. And we agree that the kid's great. And then they say, you're great. And the college is great. And I say, you're great. And then the conversation's over. It's a big love set. And and uh, one of my favorite things to say, they now quote it all the time among themselves, these parents. You know, children have to grow up to be tough, right? I have to preface this because it. but. So You know, we didn't close during COVID, and I actually made a very serious effort to find out if the kids were going to die from this thing. Because after a couple of days in an emergency of thinking about it, I figured out that the ones you can't isolate are the kids. They live in dormitories. So I was able to make a rule that if you're a grown-up and you work here and you're afraid of this thing, I didn't want to be in the business of choosing who's vulnerable or not then you can work from home. We'll figure it out. And we you know, we, and we, had very few did that, but some did. But with the kids, and I said the same thing for the kids. I said, you know, if you're afraid of this, we'll figure it out so you can study by Zoom. But if you're not, you're welcome. We had one student stay home. There's a certain famous clinic, and a bunch of doctors at that clinic send their kids here. And that clinic favored the lockdowns. And so a parent, in that clinic. He's the one who called me about this. He said, well, I'm very worried about your policies about the pandemic. And I said, yeah, me too. And he said, "Uh, I don't think my daughter ought to come back. And I said, she doesn't have to. And he said, but she thinks she should. And I said, Doc, are you calling me for family counseling? (laughs) he said if I don't let her come back she's gonna hate me for a decade and I said I imagine that's true so he's the only one he managed to keep her out for a semester and then he broke she broke him down and the point is it's self-government right but we made people terrified about this thing that was our first step and you don't want to do that you know well, anyway the point is after it's over, the parents would ask me, you know, in a room full of 900 or 1,000 parents, what would you do if one of them died? And, you know, that would be very bad, of course. But I always say, we can get more. And they, and they stand up and cheer, right? Because why? They know I don't mean that, but they know they want their children to grow up to be courageous, you see. And if you don't want that for your child, I mean, I I told them last Saturday, I said, there's a, this is a very conflicted time, and it's dangerous, and they are learning things that will make them unlikely to go along with the flow, and that can be dangerous for them, but remember, everybody here has got a decision to make, and the decision we're making is, we're going to pursue the truth wherever it leads, and that might cost us and they just you know you just look at their faces right they're ready for that courage yeah that's it you know because everybody wants to be nobody wants to be a coward and to bow before an awesome force only because it's an awesome force and because you think it's wrong that is soul destroying
0: I just want to share an anecdote with you Larry that confirms the effect of these university educations, I was speaking to a very courageous Catholic archbishop about the employment policy he implemented in his archdiocese was that the teachers had to pledge fidelity to the magisterium of the church and adhere to those teachings about the immorality of same-sex behavior or infidelity or extramarital relations and so forth. And of course, I congratulated him because it caused a lot of trouble. And I said, where did you get your greatest support and where did you get the greatest opposition? And he said, well, the greatest opposition was from the parents of the kids in the school. And he saw the look on my face and he said, well, where do you think those parents had gone to school? Bingo, that's confirms exactly the the point you were making. Yeah, that's serious. Wow, I'm surprised Uh, at that. There he had the courage of of that. And he's a real prince of the church, and he's doing the right thing. After I came here, it might be the single most
1: important thing that's happened here while I've been here. I was trying to figure out when I first got here, why 25% of the students left after the freshman year, and why And, you know, my favorite sport is eating in the dining hall with the students, and I'm the only old guy who sits with them. And I found that a lot were unhappy. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out for about a year and a half. And I would argue with them. They didn't like the rules. They didn't like no co-ed dorms. They didn't like core curriculum. They didn't like lots of things. And I would try to justify those things. And I couldn't You know, I would win the argument, I'm an old man, but I could see in their eyes, they weren't persuaded. And then one night I had a breakthrough. It's my favorite story. It's one of the most important events in my professional life. These frat boys said, sitting down at senior dinner, an institution around here that my wife and I have introduced. And uh, you know, there's a fancy dinner and one of their first fancy dinners. And, you know, they look forward to it. It's a big big institution here now. And this boy said to me, he's a frat boy, he's an athlete, good athlete. And he said, Dr. Arn, we're all men of the world here. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> he's 21 years old. And uh, I said, okay, are we? He said, yeah. And he said, we want you to know that there's a lot of things you have to do for the donors. And we can accept that. And I was tired that night, and I'd had this kind of conversation a million times and didn't get anywhere with it, and I snapped at him. I said, what, things?" And he said, well, you know, the dormitories and the core and the da-da-da. And I said, what the hell are you doing here? And he said, I love it here. And I said, what do you love about it? Why didn't you go to the University of Michigan? They have everything you want. I said, could you read when you came here? and he said yes and I said did you because you had every reason to know these things and yet you didn't now you're complaining four years later well I just noticed in his face and his fraternity brothers all sitting there two of them by the way are in the Alumni Hall of Fame now time passes fast I was just running them out of town I was winning that argument and the way I did it was by impeaching their choice And the next morning, we wrote the honor code. Now, there was a lot of complaints about that when we first wrote it, just like this bishop you're talking about, archbishop. But if you get it established, people rally to it. And, you know, there's lots of people here who come here not fully in agreement with me. And, you know, almost all of them leave not fully in agreement with me. But what they agree on, and it develops over time, They understand when they come, they have to agree. They just have to acknowledge that the college has a right to pursue its principles. Those are old, and they may not obstruct that. And another thing they have to surrender, and I recommend this argument to your Archbishop. At Hillsdale College, nobody owns anything. I don't own anything. You know, I just work here. And the college is different from us and larger than we. And so that's the thing, right? And accepting something like that, it doesn't just make you obedient. It makes it necessary for you to figure out these things for yourself, too. And so, yeah, that's why we work. And I think the Archbishop, he sticks to his guns. And he remembers to ask for volunteers. My first step every time I hire anybody, anybody else, is I find out what they're prepared to volunteer to do. You know, I've interviewed close to 500 people for faculty jobs now. And I find that they're very inspiring people. The ones who get a job here, they're all like we were when we were students, just getting out of graduate school, say. We were high-minded, we were pretty smart, could have made a lot more money going to law school or med school or something, but we wanted to do some great thing. And also aware at the outset, we would never get it all done. And we would never get rich. We knew all that. That's what an excellent faculty member is like. And you can find out all of that about them by saying, Why would you want to work here? You know, I, I usually start with that question or some form of it. And then whatever they say after that, that's their biggest motives. If they say, I need a job, that's not a good answer. But just probe a little more. They'll have to say something else. Why do you want this job? And when you get the right ones, they understand why they want the job.
0: Whatever you've done, Larry, it's worked. And uh, it's extraordinary the outsized influence Hillsdale College has in the country. You're a national presence. (laughs) You have developed a tremendous amount of influence. And you've reached for it through, as you explained, the online courses you offer, which are a rich feast, a great intellectual feast, with your publications and simply with the quality of what you have offered. Uh, You're in the charter schools you sponsor. All of this is really quite amazing. Now, you know, when I went to Hillsdale, to participate in that seminar, I guess it was a year ago, January, one of your students took me on a tour through your new chapel, the beauty of which simply stunned me. And he also played the organ for me. And I, of course, I met and talked with other students, and then just the general atmosphere of the place. My reaction was, I always liked the 1950s. I just didn't know you could go back there. (laughs) It's, uh... Yeah it's uh... but, yeah what i mean by that Larry is not that it's just that it's the country i remember it's sort of what the united states used to be and as you say what you're turning out in terms of your students and what we've done with our children is to prepare them to fight against all those cultural currents which are undermining both our country and them as individuals so you equip them to think critically and to develop the character to fight i think it's it's different from the
1: 1950s because we know about all this stuff the alter- alternatives are ever present to us and i think that adds intensity to the college you say it's happy i sometimes myself marvel at how happy it seems to be and you know i have good ways of measuring that I walk around the campus, I go eat in the dining hall, I teach classes and I deal with the faculty all the time. And we all understand that we have a privilege and we all understand that it has to be a service the way we go about this privilege. I said to the parents the other day, you've invested in this college, but I love to make the point, it is invested much more in your children than you have. And so you take on an obligation, you have to learn and be a teacher to everyone you meet for the rest of your life. That's what I say to your kids at senior dinner. remember that great essay by C.S. Lewis, Learning in Wartime? And he was dealing with the fact that lots of students thought they should be off at the war. And he said, well, this is our station, but we have to perform it intensely. And that's helpful to us. If it doesn't destroy us, it makes us better
0: let me go back to something else you've done. I know that you personally in your courses uh, have taught and teach George Orwell's 1984. And there's the memory hole in which things are eliminated from the past. There's the rewriting of the past and so forth. Now, we're all familiar with the New York Times Magazine 1619 Project, you mentioned, by the way, that in schools students are taught that their country had uh, corrupt beginnings, that it was corrupt in principle, uh, that it, it therefore it doesn't it's not lovable it's 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 uh, not inspiring. And of course, the 1619 project played into that by saying that they chose that year in which slaves were imported to the colonies that the United States is founded on slavery, not upon freedom. Now, you participated and were the Vice Chairman of this 1776 Council. Can you wrap this up by telling us about that contestation between I myself in reading it and writing about it took the 1619 Project to be an Orwellian rewrite of history. Well,
1: that's exactly what it is. And and see, the country is not lost in part because there's no serious historian, including those of the left, who say that thing is true. Gordon Wood wrote, no colonist wrote. No colonist wrote. And remember, the only record we can have of what they thought is what they wrote. No colonist wrote that the purpose of the colony or ultimately the nation was to perpetuate slavery. So that's good, right? But it doesn't mean they won't persist. They're getting it into the schools all the time. And we have to remember that Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas said in slightly different language, this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. And the antidote to the 1619 Project is to look at the record. And if you do, you'll find that that they believed in freedom for everybody, that they thought slavery was an evil, that they didn't get rid of it, some culpability to them because of that, but they did establish principles that required its demise. And the Civil War happened because those principles came to be doubted, by the way, on not dissimilar terms from what we have today. began to understand the human being as a development, not as a natural thing. You know, John C. Calhoun studied at Yale with a guy named Lessing, who had studied with students of Hegel. And so they think that society and people are evolving, and the ones who have evolved less, it's a moral duty to keep them from having influence. Servitude is better for them. But you won't find that argument anywhere in the American Revolution. And if you find it somewhere there, you won't. But if you do, then you need to print it. But it wasn't there. And so they pretend that it was. It's like a lot of things they do because, you know, it's a 1619 project as a journalistic enterprise. What they do in journalism now is they go and find something you've said that can be made to mean what they, what they believe you believe or want to claim that you believe. And they just run with that. So the one fact they have in there, that these are big facts, was that a slave ship arrived in the colonies in 1619 and that slavery persisted in parts of America until 1865. That's true. That's a, mar- a mark on our nation. We weren't willing, white people were not willing to live with black people as equal citizens, which was one of the barriers to removing slavery. And that's why Lincoln was just when he said, you know, the, in the sublime second inaugural address, he said, uh, uh, if every drop of blood drawn by the lash must now be replayed by another drawn by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. You see, and then he says, if he is given to this war as a punishment, is not the word he used, but punishment for that offense we're paying that punishment now and that's how we the only way we can put this behind us see and so that's right every human institution has got its failings and ours did but that doesn't mean its principles are not perfect which they are and its service to those principles is beyond example on earth at least you see and if you don't teach the children that here's what you do you put them to sleep because if it's true that they were all evil back then and we're, they're all we're all good now there's nothing for us to do you see <laughs> and that's that's what they do they don't they don't give the children a job and they need a job within the constraints of nature and understanding that those are serious constraints it's our business to be good ourselves and make the world better. And that's hard work. And the fact that great human beings like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln did not fully succeed at that. That means there's a challenge for serious people to undertake.
0: Larry, I think you're absolutely right in characterizing the central contestation today between those who believe in the permanence of human nature and those who think that it's pliable and uh, that it can be turned into something other than it is. That latter school of thought, which is so present in the culture, even in the corporations, certainly in the educational world, has led to this bizarre proliferation of gender designations of which i believe there are more than 300 and you you know there are always more because it appears that once human nature is not permanent it's not ordered to any end which end is the good which is what we've been talking about then it is directionless we think now that we can make
1: boys into girls and vice versa and the, the trouble is they're not equipped for that and maybe you can do it right but why would you do it especially when they're minor children I mean how can they make a judgment like that and you know it's possible in some future time that we'll have treatments that can make us go back and forth week by week if we want to without much penalty but if that's true that's like what I said about living forever that won't be a human life because what nature, you know, that word comes from the Latin word for birth. And how we come to be is one of our trials. And yet we have this rational faculty that makes it possible for us to think outside those trials. And therefore, that's something like a test to us. Can we accept the trials? I mean, my wife and I have two grandchildren now. And they're the most important things in the world. And they live nearby people say that's lucky I say luck it doesn't have anything to do with that and we're watching them grow up and it's just like when our children grew up nature is on display every day and nowhere better on display than they're learning to talk our 22-month-old granddaughter is a talking fool and she's of course the most beautiful being on earth the five-month-old grandson Has not done anything interesting yet. So I'll get attached to him when he starts doing that. He actually is looking like a little boy now, so I'm more interested. But this Charlotte is her name, she just owns me exactly as her mother did. And you you watch her, the intensity of concentration that produces speech in her. Uh, A great translator of Aristotle, my favorite, Joe Sachs, writes about the human soul he said nobody ever teaches a child to talk they couldn't learn without us but they're doing all the work and they're doing it because they want to and because they can and you know we've always had boxer dogs and we have boxer puppies that were puppies when these two grandkids were little and you know they're growing but they're not talking And they never will, (laughs) you know, and that's, and they hear all the same things as the grandkids do, but they don't talk, right? And that's there, that's nature asserting itself. Speech is more fundamental than
0: sex, but sex is also fundamental because
1: it's how we come to be.
0: Well, perhaps you'd agree, Larry, that mother nature wins in the end but it can extract a big price oh Uh, yeah you're you're speaking of the penalty that this country paid through the bloodbath that was the Civil War as Lincoln said we had violated those very laws of nature and nature's God by allowing slavery in those parts of the country that wish to cling to it I think there's a penalty to be paid today and perhaps soon for the distortions of what a human being is that is being propagandized and lived out by so many unfortunate human beings who, who take it to the point of disfiguring their bodies uh, according to the bizarre ideology that they can change their sex and of course the indulgence of in drug the, all kinds the dissolution of families You provide a point of great hope and the influence of Hillsdale that has so exceeded what anyone could expect of a liberal arts college. But the question still obtains, are we in such trouble that this time we may not find a way out of it? Or will the United States be challenged so overtly and so clear a way? let us say by some crisis with China, that we'll have to remember who we are because we'll have to have something to defend, much in the same way as you were speaking of Churchill's leadership. I remember the famous Oxford Student Union resolution that they wouldn't fight for king or country was sometime back in the 30s, you would know, yet they all did. But Churchill spoke so movingly of what Great Britain meant what principles it stood for. And those were the things by which the British people could rally and did rally. Now, it seems we're facing one of two things. We won't be able to do that, or say we're not given a challenge of that magnitude, and therefore we just kept slipping and sliding down the slope of degeneracy. Or we are challenged perhaps don't meet the challenge, but perhaps at least uh, recover that memory of who we are and the character we need to defend those things.
1: Churchill's last speech in the House of Commons was about nuclear weapons in 1954. And here are the last words in it, never flinch, never weary, never despair. And see, that's the spirit. He writes this beautiful essay. I mean, when when you talk about these ultimate things, we don't know. Churchill didn't know, ever. He knew he didn't know. But he, in 50 Years Hence, which is one of the greatest things he ever wrote, it's an essay. He says, imagine a world 15 or 16 centuries of men later. I'm paraphrasing. They can live as long as they want. They know pleasures wider than we can ever know. They can possess knowledge of everything in nature. They can go anywhere they want. Interplanetary included. What would be the good of all that to them? What would they know more than we know about the answer to the simple, simple questions that every human being faces? What are we here for? What should we do? It is the prevalence, persistence of those questions that gives the greatest hope that all will be well. So. If you get thrown into a prison by President Xi, which many, many have, if you can think clearly, and it would probably help you think clearly, you will not be able to agree with him that he is God. In other words, we don't know the future, but we know the basic facts, and they will sooner or later assert themselves. Will it be soon enough?
0: One prays and is obliged to hope and believe. Well, Larry, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss the State of the United States. greatly appreciate your doing it, and I thank our audience for joining us. I encourage you to go to the Westminster Institute webpage and to our YouTube channel to see what other presentations and lectures we have on offer. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Robert Riley.